My wife loves jigsaw puzzles. Any of you like jigsaw puzzles? Yep. She can tie up the dinner table for days working on a complicated puzzle. The name jigsaw puzzle came from how puzzles, these puzzles were originally made. Maps were glued to sheets of wood, then the pieces were cut out with a jigsaw. According to the people at the Guinness Book of World Records, the jigsaw puzzle with the most pieces was assembled in September 2010 by college students in Vietnam. It contained over 550,000 pieces. Well, in Jeremiah chapter 22, we have a jigsaw puzzle of sorts. This chapter contains some technical prophetic details that when put together solve a divine puzzle. I think you'll be amazed. Chapter 22 begins. Thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah and there speak this word. Here's God's instructions to Jeremiah to go to the kings of Judah. Now for 40 years, Jeremiah warned Judah of coming judgment. And five kings presided over Judah's last days. Here's the last kings and sort of a timeline. It'll help you tonight as we go through this. First was the good and godly king, Josiah. He reigned from 641 to 609, 31 years in Judah. He died in a battle against the Egyptians. We'll talk about that in a moment. His son, Jehoahaz, took over for Josiah. He reigned for three months in the year 609. He was succeeded by another of Josiah's sons, Jehoahaz's brother. His name was Jehoiakim. He ruled 11 years from 609 to 597. Jehoiakim was succeeded by his son, Jehoiakim. You with me so far? You with me? Jehoiakim, who was sometimes called Jeconiah, other times called Coniah. We'll talk about him tonight. He was called Coniah for a reason. He reigned in Judah for three short months before being taken captive. And then the last king, Zedekiah, another of Josiah's sons, Jehoiakim's uncle, he reigned from 597 to 586 B.C. or 11 years. All five of these kings heard God's warning, but they had calloused hearts. They refused to listen. All the while, they tested God's patience. God's anger was boiling. Now in chapter 22, it spills over. In verse 2, God tells Jeremiah what to say to the house of David, to these Davidic kings. Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah. You who sit on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates, thus says the Lord, execute judgment and righteousness and deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, or the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Notice God's concerns. They're for the stranger. They're for the fatherless. They're for the widow. You know, God has always been the God of the underdog. He shows pity on the poor and underprivileged. Here God mentions strangers or perhaps undocumented immigrants. Regardless of the country's immigration policy, the church should be kind to the stranger. You know, if we want to express God's heart to the world, we'll show compassion to the disadvantaged, to the displaced. Benevolence should never be an afterthought. It should be front and center in the mission of God's people. He goes on and he says, For if you indeed do this thing, that is, do no wrong to the stranger, then shall enter the gates of this house, riding on horses and in chariots, accompanied by servants and people, kings, who sit on the throne of David. In other words, a kingdom known for its compassion will be preserved. God will see to it that the heirs of David, the house of David, will remain on the throne. They'll ride in and out of royal courts. He says, but if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. And this was a stunning warning. This house 
was the house of David. This was the Davidic dynasty. If you were a Jew waiting on the Messiah, who, by the way, was the son of David, this prophecy would make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11, David is told, The Lord tells you that He will make you a house, that is a dynasty. When your days are fulfilled and your, and your rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish His kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And of course, that was Solomon. He built the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And it's these last words that stood out. An heir of David, a son of Solomon, would sit on the throne of Judah. For how long? Forever. The Jews and the rabbis, they understood that the Messiah would be this eternal king. And yet, if God made good on his threat here to terminate the Solomonic dynasty, the Davidic dynasty, in other words, this house becomes a desolation, if that occurs, what's going to happen to the promised Messiah? How will he ever sit on the throne? I'm sure Satan must have snickered to himself. Ha! God's anger's gotten the best of him this time. He's gotten angry. He's going to judge. And he's just going to shoot himself in the foot. He's about to cut off the promised Messiah and ultimately our hope of salvation. There's a puzzle that needs to be solved. Verse 6. For thus says the Lord to the house of the king of Judah, You are Gilead to me, the head of Lebanon. Yet I surely will make you a wilderness, cities, which are not inhabited. Gilead was and is today one of the most fruitful areas. It's up in the northern part of Israel. And yet if his people continue in sin, God says he's going to turn even Gilead into a wilderness. He says, I will prepare destroyers against you, everyone with his weapons. They shall cut down your choice cedars and cast them into the fire. And many nations will pass by this city And everyone will say to his neighbor, why has the Lord done so to this great city? Then they will answer, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshipped other gods and served him. Weep not for the dead, nor bemoan him. Weep bitterly for him who goes away, for he shall return no more, nor see his native country. People will say of Jerusalem, this great city, why has God done this? Why has God destroyed her? And it's because she's followed after other gods and has worshipped idols. For thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah his father, who went from this place. Now understand, at the time, the world's superpowers We're headed for a showdown. You see, Babylon was on the rise. Egypt and Assyria had allied themselves together to oppose the Babylonian advancement. It all came to a head in a town on the Syrian frontier. It was a place called Carchemish. But to get there, the Egyptian pharaoh, Necho, he had to move his troops northward. And guess where he passed through? He passed through Judah and right by Jerusalem. And thus King Josiah wanted to help Babylon and thus oppose Necho. And so he brought out his army against Pharaoh Necho. Pharaoh Necho told him to back off. Told him this was a no-win proposition. Told him that God's hand was against him. Josiah refused to listen. And King Josiah, a great and godly king, died in battle in the valley of Megiddo. Now this Shalom was another name for Josiah's son and his successor, Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz took the throne in his father's place. But he was as anti-Egyptian as Josiah. And thus when the Pharaoh finished in Carchemish, he came back into the land and he deposed King Jehoahaz and took him to Egypt as a prisoner. Therefore, he ruled in Judah just three months. 
And thus we're told in verse 11, He shall not return here anymore, but he shall die in the place where they have led him captive and shall see this land no more. And in his place, Pharaoh Necho put another of Josiah's sons, Jehoiakim, on the throne. This was Jehoahaz's brother. This was Josiah's son. He reigned from 11 years from 609 to 597 B.C. And it's this King Jehoiakim who becomes the subject of the next few verses. Verse 13. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work. Now, there was nothing wrong in Jehoiakim building a grand palace, just as long as you pay your workers. But here, King Jehoiakim is in big trouble, for God is a union boss, among other things. He takes care of the workers. Leviticus 8, 19, verse 13 had laid down the law. You shall not defraud your neighbor, nor rob him. And the context of the prohibition was that of paying wages. Here he's rebuking Jehoiakim for building this palace, but not paying his workers. Verse 14, woe to Jehoiakim who says, I will build myself a wide house with spacious chambers and cut out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion, which is a brilliant red color. Shall you reign because you enclose yourself in cedar? In other words, does living in a large, beautiful palace, does that establish your kingdom? Is that what makes for a great king? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. No, King Josiah was great because he had been obedient to God. He had done rightly and justly. That's why Josiah had reigned for three decades. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Was not this knowing me, says the Lord? Isn't that interesting? Was not this knowing me? We talk about knowing God. What is the evidence that you know God? It's that you have love for those that are least advantaged. Ultimately, Josiah's righteousness stemmed from the fact that he knew God, but his knowledge of God was revealed by his compassion toward the poor and needy. And this is what we're told in 1 John chapter 3. Whoever has this world's goods and see his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? God cares not only about a person's soul, he cares about their stomach. And here the king's performance is measured by his compassion on society's neediest. And then we're told in verse 17, Yet your eyes and your heart are for nothing but your covetousness, for shedding innocent blood and practicing oppression and violence. Therefore thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, my brother, or alas, my sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, master, or alas, his glory. In other words, there'll be no remorse at this man's burial. He shall be buried with the burial of a donkey, dragged and cast out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Second Chronicles chapter 36 and verse 6 says that the Babylonians chained Jehoiakim and drug him back to Babel. It was an awful, terrible punishment. He was replaced by his son Jehoiakim, but he lasted just three months. Jehoiakim was also taken to Babylon in 597 BC during the second deportation of Jews from Jerusalem. He was replaced by the final king of Judah, a man named Zedekiah. Verse 20 says, Go up to Lebanon and cry out, and lift up your voice in Bashan. Cry from Abarim, for all your lovers are destroyed. Now the prophets had testified that God's hand was on the Babylonians. God was going to use them as his instrument of judgment. Yet Judah refused to accept their plight. Instead, they made treaties with Assyria. They allied themselves with Egypt. 
These other nations were her lovers mentioned here that ended up being destroyed. He says, I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not hear. This has been your manner from your youth that you did not obey my voice. Last week we read about Zedekiah. Zedekiah turned to God for help in Jerusalem's last days. When the city was under siege and he had no other choice. Oh, he cried out to God. But in the days of Judah's prosperity, he didn't think he needed God's help. Isn't this like people today? Oh, when times are tough, they need God. When things are looking good, they don't have time for him. We're told, the wind shall eat up all your rulers, and your lovers shall go into captivity. Surely then you will be ashamed and humiliated for all your wickedness. O inhabitant of Lebanon, making your nest in the cedars, how gracious will you be when pangs come upon you, like the pain of a woman in labor. Oh, you're doing so well now, but what about when the labor pains come upon you? It's like a first-time mom. Oh, I can handle this, no problem. Oh, you're kidding. When you first feel that thing. Oh, that's what we're talking about. He says, as I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck it off. Now listen to what God is saying. The man that the Lord here calls Coniah was Jehoiakim's son. He was now the king. His proper name was Jehoiakim which means Jehovah will establish. But in addressing him here, it is God that drops the prefix, Jehoah, which was an abbreviation for God's own name, Jehovah. This is telling. This is revealing. God is deliberately saying that he doesn't want to be associated with this man. Don't call him Jehovah is established, Jehoah Achim. Call him Coniah. Take Jehovah out of it. I don't want to have anything to do with this king. This is what God is saying. Wow. Reminds me of Alexander the Great. One day he was inspecting his troops when he came upon a soldier who had been lazy, who had exhibited a bad attitude. When the general asked him his name, the fellow sheepishly responded, Alexander. Immediately, the general, he leaped off his horse. He grabbed the shoulder, soldier. He started shaking him. He said, young man, either change your attitude or change your name. The general didn't want to share his name with a lazy man. And I hope the king of kings doesn't feel that way about us. We call ourselves Christian, but would Jesus tell us, wow, you either need to change your name or change your attitude. This is how God felt about Coniah. God didn't want this man sitting on the throne. He's going to cut him off and his descendants. The king's ring, remember, was his official signet. It represented his royal authority. Even if Coniah was God's ring, he says, he would still pluck him off and throw him away. God would rather not have a king than to be represented by this Coniah. He says, and I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life and into the hand of those whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. So I will cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they desire to return, they shall not return. This proved true. This is what happened. It was prophetic. Jehoiakim lived 37 years in Babylon and he died there just as God said he would. He actually outlived the king who took his place, Zedekiah. And throughout King Zedekiah's tenure, false prophets kept predicting that Coniah would return to the land and retake the throne. It never happened. Just as God said, you shall not return. There is an interesting archaeological footnote. The name Jehoiakim and the names of five of his seven sons appear on a tablet that was discovered near the famous Ishtar Gate in the ruins of Babylon's Hanging Gardens. 
The king was listed among those people who received oil and grain from the king of Babylon. That Jehoiakim found favor in Babylon is confirmation of 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 30. It's a verse that predicts just that. Verse 28, he says, Is this man Coniah a despised, broken vessel? An idol in which is no pleasure? And of course the answer to that was yes, that's what he is. Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? And he answers, O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Jehoiakim did have sons, but it would be as if he didn't. He says, write this man down as childless. It would be as if he was childless, for none of Jehoiakim's sons ever sat on their father's throne. In fact, he was succeeded by Zedekiah, an uncle, not a son. Jehoiakim did have a famous and godly grandson. A man named Zerubbabel was his grandson. And Zerubbabel was the one who led the first group of Jews home from Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem. But remember, Zerubbabel was the Persian governor. He never attempted to be a king. God had promised David that he and his son Solomon would never lack an heir to sit on the throne. He promised that their kingdom would be eternal. This meant that Messiah was to be born of David's lineage. This is why Jesus was called the son of David. Messiah would come through the royal line succeeding David and Solomon. And yet here in Jeremiah chapter 22, look what God does. He curses the bloodline of Jehoiakim and thus the blood lineage from Solomon. And for centuries... This was a puzzle. This was a giant jigsaw puzzle. It baffled the Jewish rabbis. It puzzled them. It was a quandary to them. Why did God sabotage His own promise of salvation? Why did God short-circuit the coming of His Messiah? And yet, I hope this comes as no surprise to you. But God knew what He was doing. All along. God knew what He was doing. He was creating a puzzle. He was identifying the Messiah in such a way to where his identity would be undeniable. God was setting the stage so that Jesus would be the only man qualified for the job. When we get to the New Testament, in the Gospels, we find two genealogies. The first genealogy is in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Matthew, a Jew who was a Levite, wanted to prove Jesus' Messiahship. So he traced his lineage from Abraham to David, through Solomon to Jehoiakim, all the way down to Joseph, Jesus' stepdad. Matthew established that Jesus was the royal heir to the throne of David. The second genealogy is in Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. Remember, Luke was a Gentile. His concern was Messiah's humanity. And so he traced Jesus' lineage from the first man, Adam, down to Abraham, down to David. And then rather than through Solomon, he detours the cursed line of Jehoiakim and goes from David through another son, Nathan, down to Jesus' mother, Mary. And when you put these two genealogies together, the genius of our great God becomes evident. As Joseph's stepson, Jesus was first born in his family and entitled to his father's legal rights, which included royal succession. But because Jesus was virgin born, he didn't have Joseph's blood, which avoided the blood curse God had placed on Jeconiah. 
This means that Jesus is David and Solomon's legal heir through Joseph, but he is David's natural heir through Mary. Mary descended from another of David's sons, Nathan, not Solomon, thus avoiding the blood curse. When God cursed the house of Jehoiakim, Satan and his demons laughed. The rabbis gasped. What has God done? But what appeared to be a divine gaff was God's means of pinpointing exactly the identify and identifying his chosen Messiah. In the Bethlehem manger, the jigsaw pieces all came together. The puzzle was solved. The only person who can possibly be the Messiah of Israel is Jesus Christ. Chapter 23. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. The shepherds he speaks of here were the political leaders. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people, You have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doing, says the Lord. You didn't look out for my people, but boy, I'm going to look out for you. I'm going to bring judgment upon you. The king and his court had failed to listen to God, had failed to listen to his prophets, and it had led directly to the dispersion of God's people back to Babylon. God's going to judge these leaders for their failures. But he's going to be merciful to the people. The mistakes of the leaders won't be permanent, he says, but I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. The Jews that will be hauled away to Babylon will be returned. They'll be regathered. And notice the scope of this prophecy. For Jeremiah here is not merely talking about the Jews who returned from the Babylonian exile in 535 B.C. Instead, Jeremiah speaks of the Jews who will return from all countries, he says. Now, the Bible makes it clear that there will be two regatherings of Jews. The first regathering took place when they came back from Babylon. It occurred in three waves. Remember Zerubbabel, he returned to rebuild the temple. Ezra, he came to rebuild the people. And then Nehemiah returned with Jews to rebuild the walls. But the second regathering of Jews to Judah is spoken of here and also referred to in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11. Jews won't just come back from Babylon, but from all the nations. It says, it shall come to pass in that day, Isaiah 11, that the Lord shall set His hand again the second time to recover the remnant of His people. When they returned from Babylon, they lived in the land for another 600 years. That is until 70 A.D. when the Jews revolted from Rome. The Romans put down the uprising. They burned Jerusalem. They scattered many of the remaining Jews. And at this point in history, a period began known as the Diaspora. Or the Jewish dispersion. That Jewish dispersion has lasted now for 1900 years. Jews even today are scattered all around the globe. There are more Jews in New York City today than there are in Jerusalem. This dispersion has existed until now. For only the second time in their history, another regathering is taking place. Even today. In 1948, when Israel became a nation, there were 700,000 Jews in all Israel. In 1980, that number had swelled to 3.2 million. In 2000, there were 5 million Jews in Israel. And today, the number of Jews in Israel is over 6 million. Jews are returning to their homeland. And here's the point. The Bible doesn't predict three returns or five returns or 12 regatherings of the Jews to the land, the Bible says that there'll be two. And at the time of the second, the Lord will return to establish His kingdom on the earth. This is one of those prophecies that I believe points to the return of Jesus Christ in our lifetime 
Believe me, guys, he is coming soon. Then verse 4 says, I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall there be lacking, says the Lord. And we know who these future shepherds will be. In Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus said to his 12 disciples, In the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. When Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom, his disciples, his 12 disciples, will be responsible for ruling over Israel. And then verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. The Bible speaks of Messiah as being a branch from David's family tree. But unlike Jehoiakim, who was the evil branch, Messiah is a branch of righteousness. His roots are righteous. His limbs are holiness. His fruit is love and mercy. Rather than a cursed king with cursed blood, the coming king will rule forever. We're told in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Or in the Hebrew, Jehovah to Sidkenu, Jehovah our righteousness. Jesus is both Jehovah God and our righteousness. And through Jesus, Judah will be saved. In one act on the cross, Jesus fulfilled God's holy demands and at the same time extended to us God's mercy. He has now become our righteousness. And Jehovah Tissit Canoe is just one of several names for God in your Bible. On occasions, one of God's attributes will be compounded with his name, Jehovah. For example, Genesis 22, verse 14, we find Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, our provider. Exodus 15, verse 26, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. Exodus 17, verse 15, Jehovah Nisi, Lord, my banner. Judges 6, verse 24, Jehovah Shalom, or the Lord, my peace. 1 Samuel 1, verse 3, Jehovah Sabbath, Lord of hosts. Exodus 31, verse 13, Jehovah Makedishim, Lord, your sanctifier. Psalm 23, verse 1, Jehovah Ra, the Lord, my shepherd. Ezekiel 48, verse 35, Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is present. I think it's a good idea to memorize these names of God and address Him according to your particular need. If you need money for the rent this month, He's Jehovah Jireh to you. The Lord our provider. If your soul is troubled and worried, you need Jehovah Shalom. The Lord our peace. If you have enemies that are fighting against you, why not Jehovah Nisi? Lord our banner. If you're sick tonight, Seek Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. It strengthens your faith to recall who it is that you serve. He says, therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. Boy, the Passover is the oldest religious observance and holiday in the history of humanity. It's a 3,400-year-old celebration for three millennia. God has been known as the God who brought the Hebrews out of Egypt. But the day is coming when God will be known as the God who brought the Jews out of all the countries and all the nations. The final regathering will be the new benchmark. And then verse 9, Jeremiah states, My heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man and like a man whom wine has overcome because of the Lord and because of His holy words. God's word has staggered Jeremiah. For the land is full of adulterers. For because of a curse, the land mourns. The pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up. Their course of life is evil and their might is not right. 
For both prophet and priest are profane. Yes, in my house I have found their wickedness, says the Lord. In my own house I have found their wickedness. The problems in the nation were a reflection of what was occurring in God's house. The prophets and priests had become corrupt. Hey, if the plight of a nation is an indication of the state of God's people, what does that say for the church in America today? Boy, let judgment begin at the house of the Lord. He goes on, verse 12, continues to speak of the false prophets, the bogus priests. He says, Therefore their way shall be to them like slippery ways. In the darkness they shall be driven on and fall in them. For I will bring disaster on them the year of their punishment, says the Lord. And I have seen folly in the prophets of Samaria. They prophesied by Baal and caused my people Israel to err. Also, I have seen a horrible thing in the prophets of Jerusalem. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They also strengthen the hand of evildoers so that no one turns back from his wickedness. I mean, the prophets of Israel were no better than the pagan prophets of Baal. They had compromised their devotion to God and committed spiritual adultery with idols. And now this was going on in Judah, in Jerusalem, in the very city of God. He says, all of them are like Sodom to me and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. Their spiritual infidelity, their lack of devotion to God, was just as offensive as Sodom and Gomorrah's sexual sins. We tend to point to someone's sexual sins and we, we tend to you know, be self-righteous about it. Oh, we, we, we're not doing that. But if we're committing adultery to God, if we're inviting idols into our lives, if we're not being faithful in our hearts to Him, as far as God is concerned, it's just the same. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with wormwood, that is, with bitterness, and make them drink the water of gall, the potion of poison. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, profaneness has gone out into all the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. Notice Jeremiah's description of the false prophets. They speak a vision of their own heart, but not from the mouth of the Lord. This is what we hear from pulpits today across our nation. Not the sound of sound doctrine, but the muddying of the things of God with the opinions of men. It's not man's vision, but it's God's word that we need. He says, I continually say to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you shall have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say, no evil shall come upon you. Really? Disregard God? Walk according to your own wisdom and no evil will come upon you? The false prophets were giving the people a false sense of security. They were selling a false bill of goods. They were telling folks that they could despise God and His standards and everything will be okay. Oh, don't worry. God is good. He's kind. He'll never send anybody to hell. No evil will come upon you. Whose Bible are you reading? He says, For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and has perceived and heard His word? Who has marked His word and heard it? These folks that were speaking that God, that no evil would come upon them, they had never heard from God. They didn't even consulted His word. He says, Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord has gone forth in fury, a violent whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until He has executed and performed the thoughts of His heart. In the latter days, you will understand it perfectly. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. Jeremiah says, God is going to bring judgment. God is angry with the wicked. Don't be deceived. God is a God of righteousness and holiness, as well as a God of love. Boy, Jeremiah was not afraid to speak God's truth. The prophets were speaking for God. They had not been sent by God. 
How dare these men spout, thus saith the Lord, when God had not spoken to any of them. And I think this needs to be emphasized to every new believer. I think we all need to know that not everybody who speaks in the name of God is necessarily from God. Verse 22. But if they had stood in my counsel, if they had really listened to me, God says, and if they had caused my people to hear my words, then they would have turned from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. If the false prophets had really been of God, they they would have first repented themselves. He says, am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can anyone hide himself in a secret place so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? God is all-knowing. God is omnipresent. You cannot run from God. Ask Jonah. He purchased a ferry to the ends of the earth, and yet God tracked him down, swallowed the runaway prophet. Ask Jonah. Verse 25, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? Indeed, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart who try to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which everyone tells his neighbor as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. Now, one of the ways that a false prophet will manipulate and intimidate God's people is by appealing to the supernatural, to dreams or to visions. If he's convincing enough with his hyper-spirituality, you walk away thinking, wow, who am I to question him? I mean, he has dreams. He gets heavy revies from God. Divine communiques. I could barely read and understand my Bible. I mean, who am I to question Him? And if you're thirsty for God, and you think what He's drinking is what you're longing for, then you become a candidate for serious deception. This is why I am always leery of dreams and visions. Not that I don't believe God speaks in such ways. I just know that God has first and foremost spoken to us through His Word. I take the approach, show me in the scriptures. Hey, show me in the book. Give me chapter and verse. And then I'll listen to what else you have to say. Paul wrote to the Galatians, chapter 1, verse 8. Even if an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than we have preached to you, let him be accursed. If an angel comes to you at night, and sits on the foot of your bed, and contradicts what is written in God's Word. Let him be accursed, Paul says. You remember a fallen angel. His name is Satan, Lucifer. He's been known to author dreams. Trace the root of every major cult in the world today, and you'll find at its inception a purported dream or vision. Don't forget, dreams come from three sources. Sometimes they come from God. Sometimes they come from Satan. Sometimes they come from the anchovies on the pizza. The prophets in Jeremiah's day were spouting dreams that would turn into nightmares. Be careful about dreams. Matter of fact, did you hear about the fellow who said, I dreamed I was eating spaghetti and when I woke up my pajama string was gone. Anyway. Verse 28 conveys a profound thought. The prophet who has a dream, let him tell his dream. And he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord. God says, what is the chaff to the wheat? The chaff is to the wheat what a dream is to God's word. Oh, the guy with the dream. He'll ooh and awe the crowd. Everybody's impressed with his super spirituality. He's like a freeway accident. He always draws a crowd. Whereas the guy who's seriously and methodically teaching the Bible faithfully, he, become, he comes across boring and redundant. But hey, what's going to make you grow healthy? What's going to make you grow strong? 
How are you going to muscle up? By eating chaff? Worthless stalks and shells? Or by feeding on the wheat? That which has substance, the nutritional grain, which is the Word of God. The guy who eats only the chaff, he says, Ah, shucks. Ah, shucks. It made me feel full, but it didn't really make me any stronger. Whereas the person who feeds on the Word of God is like the guy who ate his Wheaties. The Bible is the breakfast of champions. It is the nutrition that we need. And then I love verse 29. Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? A dream, some vision, some ethereal thing. It's like the morning dew. It's like a summer haze. It doesn't last till noon. When the sun does its job, it's gone. It has no lasting impact. Whereas God's word is like a fire. It's powerful. It can warm up a cold house. It can light up a dark road. The word of God is like a hammer. Oh, it always makes its point. It can break a stony heart. It can dash to pieces the toughest doubts. He says, therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who steal my words, every one from his neighbor. Whoa, woe to the false spokesman, the false prophet or pastor. It's not just the error that he spews, but it is God's truth that he fails to deliver. Nothing is worse than robbing God's people God's word. How can there be anything worse than to steal the word of God from God's people by not delivering it to them? He says, Behold, I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who use their tongues and say, He says. They say, Well, He says. Well, God says. You know, if you want to really intimidate someone spiritually, just add a little vibrato to your voice. Thus says the Lord. Oh my. Even though he hasn't. The false prophets had perfected this charade. Thus says the Lord. Sometimes we toss out about a little too much, I think. A little too flippantly. We'll speak of a decision. Well, you know, the Lord told me. As if we got a direct order from God, did we? It's probably more like we were impressed to do so. We might have felt it was from the Lord, or perhaps it was good wisdom. It was the wise thing to do. Well, just saying that is probably more accurate than referring to it as a direct order from the Lord. The Lord does speak to you, but when He does, it's not a flippant thing. It's a heavy thing. Verse 32, Behold, I am against those who prophesy false dreams, says the Lord, and tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and by their recklessness. Yet I did not send them or command them. Therefore, they shall not profit this people at all, says the Lord. Notice the pun. These are unprofitable prophets. So when these people or the prophet of the, or the priest ask you, saying, What is the oracle of the Lord? An oracle was a spontaneous utterance originating from the spiritual world. It's sort of a spiritual, supernatural communique. He says, so when they ask, what is the oracle of the Lord? What is the word from the Lord that you've heard? You shall say then to them, what oracle? I will even forsake you, says the Lord. And as for the prophet and the priest and the people who say the oracle of the Lord, I will even punish that man in his house. Thus every one of you shall say to his neighbor and every one to his brother, what is the Lord answered and what is the Lord spoken? And the oracle of the Lord you shall mention no more. In other words, if you want to know God, read His Word. Don't lean on divine oracles. Go to the source. Go to His Word. See what He has to say. For every man's word will be his oracle. For you have perverted the words of the living God, the Lord of hosts, our God. In other words, everyone had created their own oracle. Everyone was getting their own divine communique, supposedly. Thus, rather than studying objective truth, 
rather than rightly dividing the word of God, everyone preferred to have their own supernatural utterance. Well, God told me. Well, that's kind of different from what he told me. But, well, God speaks to you. God speaks to me. No, God doesn't contradict himself. Everyone's word became their own oracle. They tailored it to sanction what they desired. And it made for spiritual chaos. Is that not a description of what we have in the church today? Spiritual chaos. Without a standard. Without an objective truth. Without a plumb line. It's anything goes. All in the name of God. That's not the will of God. That's not how God would ordain it. He says, thus you shall say to the prophet, what has the Lord answered you? And what has the Lord spoken? But since you say the oracle of the Lord, therefore thus says the Lord, because you say this word, the oracle of the Lord, and have sent to you saying, do not say the oracle of the Lord. Therefore behold, I, even I, will utterly forget you and forsake you and the city that I gave you and your fathers and will cast you out of my presence and I will bring an everlasting reproach upon you and a perpetual shame which shall not be forgotten. In short, prophets who speak of God's oracle against His express command to foster their own agenda will be put to shame and will be forgotten. And who were these prophets saying, the oracle of the Lord, the oracle of the Lord? What were their names? Oh, we don't know, do we? They were big names in their own day, but they've been forgotten. They've been put to shame. We know names like Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Daniel, Ezekiel. Men who spoke God's word. Their names will never be forgotten. But those who speak in the name of God, a message that is not from God, will forever be put to shame. And there we have Jeremiah chapters 22 and 23. 